Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we have Matt Hammerstein, CEO of Barclays UK, as a special guest, joining Phil Attreed, Head of Investment Consulting, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, to share his views on steering a major UK business through a pandemic and a changing corporate landscape, as well as what his vision is for the future as we enter a period of rising inflation and labour shortage. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. I'm Phil Attreed, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting. And this week I'm excited to welcome back to the podcast our Chief Executive of Barclays UK, so Matt Hammerstein, and on our results day as well. So we're lucky to have him with us today. As in past visits, Matt provides us with a unique view from his perspective as a leader of a major UK company, as well as actually helping keep Will, our Chief Investment Officer, from straying too far from this century, as I know many of our listeners will no doubt be all too familiar with. But Will, we will start with you. What's been going on in the world of uh, economy and investment markets this week? Risky, Phil, risky. I still get my slot to deviate into history, but I'm not going to, I promise. Um, so, I mean, I think stagflation is still, um, you know, very much the buzzword at the moment. Um, lead indicators for growth around much of the world have been running into the sand a little bit over the last couple of months, as you know. Uh, and you combine that with a still, you know, still very high incoming readings of inflation, surging commodity prices, as well as re-accelerating COVID case counts in some parts of the world. The UK is notable here. And, you know, a central bank community with, you know, increasingly itchy trigger fingers. Um, you know, so it's a pretty disorienting mix for investors at the moment, as well as all of that onlookers. Now, now, as you know, you know, we still think that the world economy has, you know, simply too much pent up demand in its back pocket um, for stagflation to be your base case. Some of those supply chain bottlenecks will, you know, likely ease in coming quarters a bit, which we expect to release some of that demand pressure. However, you know, what we are seeing in developed world labour markets at the moment is potentially a little less temporary. You know, the clearing price for demand and supply in various labour markets, i.e. wages, um, you know, has risen substantially um, as, uh, you know, the supply of labour or workers uh, is coming up, you know, quite substantially short relative to, um, you know, to, to, to demand, forcing wages higher. So in the US, you're seeing you know, average hourly earnings, latest statistics are up nearly 5% over the last 12 months. That's the largest and most sustained increase in wages uh, for workers we've seen since the 1990s. Now, the key question here, um, and it applies to the UK um, as well, is really about, you know, that how that supply of workers will evolve in coming quarters. Now, in the US, you've had, you know, a disproportionate number of older workers responding to the initial shock of the pandemic by retiring a bit early. There's also a bit of a kind of an immigrant shaped hole um, in available supply, um, among multiple other uh, other factors. Now, this is part of the reason why you're seeing the incremental central bank communique, and we've seen a lot of this this week, shift from using words like transitory with regards to inflation, you know, temporary, going to pass quite soon, to starting to highlight the upside risks uh, to inflation. Now, to this end, the Bank of England uh, is expected 
to actually act before Christmas um, and others may not be as far behind as only thought, um, you know, only a, only a couple of um, couple of months ago. Now, now, more broadly, you know, perhaps, you know, this is some of the theory, some of the chat doing the rounds at the moment. Perhaps this really is a kink in our times when, you know, we move from an era of abundant supply uh, driven by multiple factors from the accession of China and her multitude of relatively inexpensive workers to the global economy, to the shale oil boom and multiple bits of you know other technological advance, which basically over the last few decades has allowed for inflation light growth and persistently generous monetary policy. Now, maybe we're moving on from that era to an era of more constrained supply, less available labour. With that, that's joining the uh, you know, in the in the workforce would slightly change attitudes to what work means. You know, you've got more expensive energy inputs thanks to the necessary move from, uh, you know, the stuff that's kept the lights on for centuries. And that all might mean that inflation is a little bit more of a thing again. And, you know, you get a more kind of party pooper central bank policy setting. You know, we shall see. Now, as you know, just final quick point from me, you know, we are prepared for that new paradigm. Um, if it arises in our multi-asset class funds and portfolios, we added inflation-linked bonds at the beginning of the year. We also added a substantial slug of diversified commodities back in January. But I think, you know, the, the overall point is that this is a very complicated juncture uh, for the world economy. We're seeing a lot of that this week. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's difficult. I mean, just, just as an aside, obviously, Bitcoin's been a big story this week. I've prattled on enough. We, we can maybe touch on that at the end and I'll uh, go into our views there. But I think we probably want to get to Matt. Quite, but I will hold you to that. And you touched on central banks a few times there in that first um, section. And so, Matt, the first thing actually I'd like to pick your brains on does relate to interest rates. So how does a business as large and complex as ours respond to what are really material changes in the expected path that interest rates might take in the years ahead. And I'm sure our listeners have picked up on from these podcasts the potential for the decade ahead to maybe look entirely different from those in our rearview mirror for all manner of things, so you know, regulation, global tax regimes. But obviously hugely influential for a bank like ours is interest rates. If we're to see more persistent higher inflation emerge, as some are fearing, how do you plan for such a potentially different world? Yeah, thank you. Just before I pick up on that specific aspect of your question, it may be worthwhile me just level setting where we are right now. So in 2020 in our business, which focuses specifically on serving UK consumers and small businesses, we saw our income reduced by just about a billion pounds. In part, that was due to the sharp reduction in the interest rates from the central bank uh, from 75 basis points in 2019 to 10 basis points at the start of 2020. But there were also income support measures that we put in place for businesses and consumers, as well as, uh, as I think many institutions saw, uh, consumers rationally use the excess savings given they weren't spending to pay down existing debt. Um, and then as well as that, uh, you know, I think it would be understandable that we adjusted some of our own risk appetite metrics for both consumers and small businesses in anticipation of what uh, what impact COVID could have on the economy, because there was a lot of uncertainty last year about that. This year, uh, as we saw in our results today, our income is improving. Uh, it's largely been aided by the strong mortgage market uh, to, to some extent uh, supported by the government stamp duty relief. But uh, I think the trend there has been broader than that in terms of people reevaluating sort of how they want to live and where they want to live, uh, and therefore uh, a lot of mortgage activity as a result. 
But we're continuing to see the impact of that low interest rate environment or ultra low interest rate environment uh, on our income, as well as continuing uh, sort of trends in consumers overpaying, if you will, relative to their debt obligations and small businesses continuing to rely primarily on the government support measures that were put in place rather than borrowing uh, to grow their businesses from banks. Now, to the first part of your question, I'm not an economist, so it's not my position to speculate on where interest rates could go or why they might go there. But we did release as a part of our Q3 results today at the group level uh, a number that we uh, quote in terms of the interest rate sensitivity of overall balance sheet. So over a three-year period of time, a 25 basis point uh, parallel shift in interest rate curves would generate about just over 500 million pounds of income on our current liability position. So we're very sensitive to the interest rate curve and in particular where uh, the Bank of England sets base rates. Um, as we think about that though, I think there's more fundamentally for us a focus on the fact that even if interest rates start to go up, they're still gonna remain at very low levels relative to history. So even if we saw the Bank of England raise base rates three times over the next year, which is you know, certainly what the market at some points over the last few weeks has estimated, we're still going to be below 1% base rate. Um, so for a business like ours that is um, very sensitive to interest rates, that will be helpful for the reasons I just said, but it's not going to solve some of the more structural challenges that we're facing, which are largely to do with cost and the fact that in a period of extended low interest rates, um, it's very clear, given our sensitivity to those interest rates, that we've got to take action on the cost side, just like every other sort of incumbent financial institution in the UK and the Western world. Alongside that, to your point on inflation, we've got to be very mindful about the, the interplay between base rate and that inflation. A lot of the inflation, as far as I can tell, isn't related to base rate. So even if the central bank decides to increase it, it isn't necessarily clear to me how that's going to offset the inflationary pressures due to either Brexit or some of the supply chain disruption caused by COVID. So we're going to have to be really fleet of foot uh, over the next few months, just as we have been the past uh, two years, to make sure that we think through the implications of the, the dynamic environment across inflation and interest rates across all of our customers and clients. And that's going to continue, that agility is going to continue to be a a really, really important part about how we make sure that our business is there to support as many people as possible, no matter what inflation and interest rate environment actually uh, realizes. Quite. And of course, you know, Will touched on the shift from an era of abundance to one of potential scarcity. And of course, the possible resulting emergence of you know, a different trend in inflation and then a knock on effect to, to interest rates. And in part, the focus there uh, is on the supply of workers. So, you know, the end of the, the Chinese labour boom for the world economy is part of it. But of course, in the UK, we have a very specific change in labour supply to consider and digest. So, I mean, even the Prime Minister himself recently spoke you know, of the need and the desire, actually, for a high-wage, high-skill economy with much lower-trend immigration. But, Matt, what does that mean for you and the business in accessing and developing, you know, the best talent for our business? Yeah, again, Will and others will be better placed to talk about uh, the actual dynamics that will enable it. But I'm confident that some of the labour challenges that we see in the economy in the immediate uh, future will be resolved um, uh, because the, it's more about sort of, I think, encouraging people to, to do the work that needs to get done. Uh, and maybe it's not work that they previously considered doing. But over the medium to longer term, I think the bigger challenge for UK businesses, and I think is consistent with the UK government's sort of leveling up strategy, 
is how do we continue to put more technical skills into the workforce? Um, I'm, it's not my phrase and it's not my concept, but I've been a big believer for a while in this idea of, of working above the API. And the idea there is, is that anything that can get automated will get automated. And if the work that you're doing can be automated, you have to believe that at some point in the relatively near future, a machine is going to start doing it. And the only way for people to sustainably stay in employment is to not struggle to stay just at the API, the level of that automated API, but to be discernibly above it. Um, so I think there's a huge onus on every employer in the UK to be not just because uh, everybody's got the need for those more deep technical skills, but we can't just put the obligation on the rest of the economy to create it. It's, that won't happen, I don't think at all, let alone at speed. So we've all got a responsibility, I think, to work together as employers to, to help people both recognize the urgency of that, but also to then to build their skills. And I don't think that's a content question because I think the content required to help people build their skills to be more technical. And just to be clear on that, I don't mean everybody needs to learn how to code, um, but people do need to understand how technology works. Many have been forced over the 18 months to deal with technology more than they probably did previously, but only in their personal life. So how do we get them to extend that into their work lives? Uh, and I think that's more a motivation and an engagement issue. That's certainly been our experience at Barclays as we worked with colleagues to, to help them both understand the need, but also think about practical ways in which they could address it for them individually. So that I think is a big uh, macro trend, as I say, for every employer. Beyond that, for us, um, we're spending a lot of time focusing on graduates and the roles of apprentices. I think a extension of the logic I just shared is that some of that is gonna come through practical experience uh, as well as sort of academic uh, context. And those apprenticeships for us help people sort of build their confidence, build their awareness, build their understanding and then find ways to build extensible skills that they can then use to do multiple different uh, roles, both within the bank and then uh, obviously beyond it. And then laterally, uh, extensive career training and develop programs. I think, uh, you know, again, a long mooted trend to do with uh, maybe some of the more generational uh, uh, changes that we've seen. But I think now more fundamental than that is this idea of the corporate ladder. I don't really think, you know, there will still be a form of a corporate ladder, but it is no longer the defining basis on which people need to think about their careers. And they need to think about their skill base as a more modular thing. And we've got to therefore create uh, training and development programs that correspond to that so that people can think about building modular skills, uh, again, through some form of academic-like uh, experience as well as practical experience, and then providing role flexibility so that they can not only understand the skill, but actually to, uh, apply it, evidence it, and then move on to whatever the next skill is. And through that aggregation of skills, that's how I think they'll ultimately move up, if you will, the whatever form of corporate ladder exists. And then finally, a big influence, I think, here on the diversity and inclusion agenda. There is a huge amount of untapped talent in the economy that just isn't being leveraged because organizations haven't figured out how to create the right access uh, and progress for excluded or um, parts of the labor force that um, haven't been, haven't felt as though they've had similar opportunities as other parts of the labor force. And I, I think, you know, given some of the challenges that we're facing, it's no longer just a moral obligation. There's a very practical reason why we just need to unlock that potential.
That's fascinating. And sorry, Matt, can I just say, please don't make me learn how to code. I don't think it'll work, but, but I, I'm incapable. But I, I guess just sticking on that labor force point, you know, I guess part of the point of having a huge number of high quality people under um, one corporate roof, if, it, it, roof is that you get them to kind of interact and bounce ideas off each other. And, you know, the studies all show increasingly um, that working from home has become um, more productive since the beginning of the crisis, since thanks to you know investment in kit. However, it just can't stand up to the you know the statistics on productivity in the office. Do you think there is you know on in this perspective? Do you think there's more that firms like ours could be doing to make links between staff, to force more random connections, and to make you know make more of the kind of talent pool that we have? The, the, I mean, the most obvious answer to that is, of course, there's always more we can do. Mm. But maybe I'm sure you wanted more uh, insight than just that. Um, the thing I would say is it's obviously role dependent. Um, and, and this is, I think, a really delicate point that I'm certainly very keen to try to make to all of my colleagues is I, I hear a lot of colleagues say, why are you, quote unquote, forcing me back into the office? I've been very productive at home and I don't need to go back. And I go back to that observation I shared earlier about sort of working or living above the API. The work that is particularly productive at home alone is very transactional in its nature by definition. If I come back to my core point, it's that if you imagine, if I just use a very crude analogy, every member of the England football team can be very productive practicing on their own. But when they get on the pitch to play against Germany or Portugal or anybody else, they're not necessarily going to be a well-functioning team. Um, so that time together as a team is fundamentally important to making them excel as a team rather than a collection of individuals. And I'm at pains to remind my team, I very rarely come across a role in the 40,000 roles in the business that I'm privileged to lead that can operate solely on its own. Everybody's a part of a team. Now, some people will come back and say, oh no, but uh, I can deal effectively in my team through video. And to some extent, I know that's true. But again, there's limitations to that, at least as far as the capability of the technology uh, holds today. Some of that may evolve through time. So we need to be very, uh, I don't think we can be locked in a view that it should work a certain way forever. But there is definitely you know, practical experience and gut feeling and I think uh, lived experience that getting those same people together in a room will create serendipity that will create better outcomes for the team whether it's in the work that we deliver or the way they work together, then you can get just by having them interact over video. So, we, you know, as a 330-year-old bank, I think we are probably at the wrong end of the curve in terms of our willingness to sort of experiment and create uh, more flexible ways in which to do that. But that's what we're going to have to learn and adapt to do, and certainly our hybrid working model envisions us doing. Quite, and I'm, I mean, I'm certainly looking to that's lo looking forward to that practical um, sort of interaction uh, again myself. But Matt, you've spoken before about productivity on this podcast, and actually, your words on necessity being the mother of invention. I think you once said, uh, you know, they've been borne out by some of the amazing developments that we've seen from vaccines and to the evolutionary leaps in working from home technology that both of you have just mentioned. But what are the innovations that you're most excited about in banking and, and possibly beyond? Yeah, I think um, technology continues to liberate finance. And what I mean by that is it makes it more accessible. So I keep reminding our teams, 10 years ago, we didn't have a mobile banking app at all. Today, we are on the cusp of having 10 million registered individuals who use our mobile banking app, uh, many of them exclusively, i.e. that's the only basis on which they access the bank. 
that's not just um, you know the benefit of HTML code, if you will, or JavaScript that uh, that enables the the mobile app to exist. What it means is that they can do their banking when they want, where they want, and how they want. So that liberating effect, I think, of technology is is very very significant, and I think you continue to see it in many different walks of life. The the myriad ways in which people can now pay. Um, whether that's through wallets on their mobile phone or through buy now pay later type capabilities that have evolved, uh, you know, very rapidly recently. So I think that liberating effect and democratizing effect of technology is going to continue, and it, it exists, you know, even in the investment space where, you know, you see players like a Robinhood, or to some extent, it has all sorts of dark sides. But you know, the the the, the fact that a lot of young people are now investing through something like crypto. Whether they should or not is a different thing, but the fact is that they are thinking about investments um, in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise, other than the fact that the technology is, if you will, encouraged it and made it more feasible and more easy for them to do so. So I'm really excited about that continued democratization of finance and the liberation of finance to make it a more inclusive and a more easy uh, set of tools for people to use. The, the bigger picture there, though, that I'm even more excited about that's harder is, is that alongside that liberation come a number of challenges that I think technology on its own can't solve. And I come back maybe to that point about how workers, if you will, in finance can live or work above the API. I think you're seeing this big segregation between machines being able to do the routine transactional stuff really, really well, aided by you know, advances in data technology, and humans now expending their time doing what they really, really do, which is about empathy, engagement, and motivation. Because uh, I speak to a lot of young people, and we do even more so through the work that we do. And you know, one of the things that they uh, struggle with in terms of finance is it's too easy. So you know, spending money is too easy now. There's nothing tangible that you know. There's no friction in the process of them spending money that reminds them how much is in their account. And they often then find themselves in this position where they spend it all before they realized it. And so they want something that brings that friction back. Now, it's easy for a Luddite like me to say, oh, well, let's just put friction back in the payment process. But that's not the right answer. So we've got to, I think, get really creative now as you know, banks and participants in the financial services industry to think about ways in which we get people now to use technology and people differently to consider their finances now in a fundamentally different way. Because a lot of the, you know, if people, no one wants to spend time, uh, other than maybe Will, uh, you know, the three of us, but most people in real life don't want to spend time doing banking. They want to live their lives and they want the banking and the finance to take care of itself. Well, technology now makes that really easy. And the time they used to spend doing their banking, they don't have to do anymore. What I think we have to do is reclaim that time to say there's different things you should have been spending that time doing. Now let's spend time on that because the friction that used to be there has gone away. And that, I think, is going to require a lot of innovation that technology can help. But it's going to require us to think differently and use people differently to encourage people, as I say, to rededicate that time to finance, but do something fundamentally different with it. Quite again, effectiveness and or effective use of time, but um, also sorry to do the other side of it, Matt. But in the interest of balance, what are you maybe most concerned about with regards to the next, say, ten years from from your perspective as uh, chief executive of Barclays UK? Yeah, the the sort of social and economic and customer and client end of the spectrum. Uh, again, there's a lot of uh, hyperbole in the market right now about interest rates going up. Uh, you know, again, even if they go up three times at 25 basis points each in the next nine months, we'll still be under 1% base rate. Um, 
But it is significant in the sense that there is a whole generation of people who've never seen interest rates go up. And, and, and a large number of people who may have seen it in the past, but have forgotten about the experience. And that is going to be, I think, a very significant thing over the next, I don't think just year, but the next 10 years for, again, banks and society to reaccommodate. And alongside that, I don't think there, you know, there's a whole generation and again, generations beyond them who have seen inflation, but have forgotten what it feels like, who've never gone through sort of, you know, material inflationary period. And those two things combined, I think, are going to create some very different ructions in society than I think we've seen over the last 10 years. And, you know, the political and sort of geopolitical sort of landscape isn't necessarily in the most stable position to help cope with that. And so that, that is very uh, front of mind for me about, again, the agility that I talked about earlier is, is probably a permanent feature of how we need to work as a financial institution and how our teams need to get ready to sort of... Um, accommodate the varying needs of our customers and clients at a point in time and through time. That's great. Thanks for sharing your thoughts there, Matt. And Will, maybe a good time to bring you back in. It's certainly been nice to keep you quiet for most of it, but <laughs> any uh, final thoughts to close out the podcast, maybe that Bitcoin comment as well. Well, it feels a bit parochial after, you know, after Matt's comments there. I mean, you know, these are important times for uh, for the banking sector, but bit, bit, Bitcoin, um, uh, I'm obviously. I mean, I think you know you've seen you've seen uh, big price surges again. I'm obviously delighted for all of those who are making their fortunes in amongst this. You know, this uh, another incredible surge in the cryptocurrency currency interest. However, I, I think for us, it's a note of caution. Um, I may simply be too old and too bald to get this one. However. Bitcoin still, to me, looks like a not very good answer to a question nobody was really asking. It, it is orders of magnitude too volatile to be a medium of exchange or a store of value. Its track record is too young to say anything of its ability as an inflation hedge in investment terms. Um, you know, suggestions of the Bitcoin standard, you know, where Bitcoin replaces all currency and we tether our economy to a fixed supply. That's just economically illiterate. We've tried it before with the gold standard. It didn't work. It's inherently deflationary. It, it is a speculative asset with literally no valuation underpinnings. Uh, that's not for all cryptocurrencies. This is Bitcoin specifically. If you've done well out of it, many congratulations. However, please, please, please be careful. Uh, diversify. Your long-term financial prospects will be much more reliably tethered uh, to a diversified batch uh, you know batch of investments tethered to the entire global economy um, obviously you know there's a self-serving it's embodied in the kind of ready-made funds and portfolios that we and our many you know competitors offer like i say self-serving but ultimately um, sensible blockchain is something different blockchain tech is is fascinating there are really some very interesting ideas about where this could go and what it could mean for corporate form for all sorts of things uh, beyond that but like i say that that should not lead you to to think that an investment in bitcoin a speculative punt on on bitcoin is a good idea at these levels we, we really do urge investors to, to to be cautious and to diversify sorry for the buzzkill answer but that's still where we're at. <laughs> Possibly what I was expecting, Will, but thank you all the same. And thank you, Matt, again for joining us uh, today. Um, thank you also to our listeners as well. We'll be back with another edition for you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.